I'm looking forward to sharing with you this morning about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I would like to uh, speak to those this morning who may be overwhelmed with their circumstances, who feel inadequate to meet the challenges that you're facing, uh, those who feel that somehow, some way, they're not measuring up either by your own standards, expectations, or those of others. I want to talk to people like myself who, who see the need of finding a life purpose, finding reason for our uh, existence, the purpose God would have for us. And so... This morning we will find that in a wonderful passage of scripture. It's a passage of scripture that I must admit that I have gone to many times. Especially when I was a pastor planting a church. And felt overwhelmed and inadequate for the task. When people are telling you how to grow a church and your church isn't growing. When people tell me how they have built these incredible facilities and you're renting a facility. You're giving yourself and you keep thinking, okay, what's wrong with me? I've had to face those uh, questions throughout my ministry. But that's like many of us. We face those kind of questions throughout our life. So I'd like to speak to those of you who have in any way are wondering... What is God doing in your life? We're going to talk about that from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Like I say, I have gone through that text many times to try to remind myself that God does have a purpose. And somehow, way, the Holy Spirit works in and through us to accomplish what he desires for us. At creation, God molded and shaped men. With his hands from the dust of the earth. And then we read that the Holy Spirit breathed into Adam and that he became a living being. And then the Lord took a rib from the side of Adam. He crafted a beautiful companion for him, Eve. God's image bears stood before God as the crown of all creation. Sin, however, as we find very quickly in Genesis, shattered that image. Years later, the Lord descended from heaven on top of Mount Sinai. And there he wrote on tablets of clay the law of Moses with his hands. The law was intended to awaken man to his sin. The unkeepable demands of the law were written to show man his desperate need for a savior. On another hill, at another time, more than a thousand years later, the same hands that formed Adam and wrote the law were willing to stretch out these hands so that man could nail his hands 
to a cross. And there on Golgotha, love, grace, and forgiveness flowed. What Christ accomplished on the cross, the Holy Spirit applies to each and every one of us. That's the Spirit's ministry. Let's look at some of the ministries we've talked before, but it's important to see them here again. The Holy Spirit regenerates spiritually dead and gives them new life. He sanctifies or sets aside sinners to liberate them from slavery to sin. He secures the insecure. He loves the unlovable. He affirms the inestimable worth of unworthy sinners. He makes the inadequate adequate. He provides the weak with power. He gives the hopeless hope. He stands with the lonely to fellowship with them. And he turns glory robbers into God exalters. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. The Apostle Paul wrote this second letter to the Corinthians to reaffirm to reaffirm the sufficiency of Christ to face their problems. And they had plenty. There was a fallen brother who needed to be restored. There were divisions in the church over loyalties to some of the apostles and to other teachers. There was congregational chaos over the proper use of spiritual gifts. And on top of that, there were false teachers who had infiltrated the church. These false teachers, they boasted of being, if you would, super apostles. Some had come to the church with impressive documents or credentials from Jerusalem. And to build themselves up in the eyes of the believers there in the church, they tried to tear down Paul's reputation by accusing him of being a promise breaker. You see, he had previously written to the church and told them that he would soon come to visit them. And yet, God redirected him. God had other plans. So these legalists, And imposters were nothing but proud, boastful hypocrites. For them, God's sovereign grace wasn't quite enough. They insisted Christians had to return to keep the demands of the law. In other words, they had to become Jewish to find their acceptance with God. They taught that Christians needed to become Jews under the law. They were adamant that Christianity needed more rules, more regulations. And in their minds, Christ came to make them, to make good people better people. Of course, Paul was rightly outraged at the assault against the gospel of grace and against his calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
He writes to him this letter boldly and confidently, but not boastfully, not in a way of exalting himself. Rather, he admitted in this letter most clearly his own personal inadequacies to show the adequacy of the Holy Spirit, the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in the life of inadequate people to overcome insurmountable odds, trials, and persecutions. He openly admits in this book, in chapter 2, he comes to the question, I don't know if you've asked this question before, I have many times, who is adequate for this? Who is adequate for these things? So in chapter 3, he answers that question. He wrote to Christians who recognize their own sense of inadequacy. What they needed was another letter to reaffirm the theology of grace that can make inadequate people adequate. And they're made adequate by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Unknown author wrote these words, and they have been important to me. But it sort of sets the stage for Paul's argument in chapter 3. It is impossible to earn acceptance and blessing if God has already given it to us. It's impossible to rely on the Holy Spirit if we are trying to go it all alone. In addition to this, it's impossible to have salvation if we remain under condemnation. These are the things that Paul wants to address. But what do I mean by insecurity? Well, insecurity is being uncertain or anxious about one's inabilities and unworthiness. It's a sense of overwhelming um, failure not measuring up to our own expectations or the uh, imposed expectations of others. This leads to, in some cases, self-promotion, self-exalting, but for others, self-loathing and self-consciousness. The insecure are consumed with their own faults And this also goes with the insecure. They tend to focus on the failures and faults of others. So it's one thing to think that you're struggling with insecurity about your own faults. But often that turns into looking, judging, critiquing other people. Often this is a result of Years, maybe years and years of verbal abuse and shame-based acceptance. You do these things and you will be accepted. But you didn't do it quite well enough. You need to do more. And how do we recognize our insecurities? I've asked myself these questions. How do we know if we're feeling insecure? When we're feeling inadequate, We have to brag about our past accomplishments to impress others. We know we're feeling inadequate when we have to tear down others to make others, to make ourselves look good. 
We know we're feeling inadequate when we think everyone is looking at us. We know we're feeling inadequate when we try to dominate conversations. We know we're feeling inadequate when we need our young grandchildren to to show us how to use our computers. (laughs) And all God's grandparents said, (laughs) you could tell these are personal. We know we're feeling inadequate when we've been asked to speak at a gathering or church without first being informed or prepared in advance. That's feeling inadequate. We know we're feeling inadequate when we're standing in front of a long line at Costco with a full basket of groceries and we realize we left our billfold at home. We know we're feeling inadequate when we have to inform a family that their dearest loved one has passed. We've had to do that way too many times. And we should all know and be convinced that we are inadequate when we read the demands of the law. Paul responds to his critics in chapter 3. We'll look first at verses 1 through 3. I'm using the ESV translation. Follow along. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. There's a lot of theology wrapped up in these verses and a lot of very practical truths. The ministry of the Holy Spirit begins in the heart. He's the one who works in and upon our hearts. He appeals to our hearts while he's transforming our ways. These super apostles in Corinth, they prated around their phony letters of recommendation like they were badges of super spirituality. They questioned Paul's qualifications to correct the church and to give it advice. Some were even asking him to produce letters of recommendation to validate his apostolic authority. And he defended his authority by reminding the church that it was he who planted the church and spent a year and a half with them teaching and discipling them in the gospel. He's arguing, I have already proved the sincerity of my faith. Now, he wasn't going to lower himself to the level of these spiritual misfits by trying to commend or brag about himself or his spiritual accomplishments, which were many. No, he didn't need a letter of recommendation 
from anyone. Why? Because they were his letter. The church was his letter. The lives of those who had been transformed by the gospel and his ministry were all the recommendation that he needed and wanted. He says because his letter of recommendation was written on the hearts of the people. The author of this letter was not Moses, but it was Christ. It wasn't written on tablets of stone like the Ten Commandments, but it was written on human hearts for all to read. Paul claimed that he was God's appointed mailman called to deliver Christ's gospel. And this letter that was written on their hearts was inscribed by the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit. That's what the Lord promised to Jeremiah. He promised to those in the Old Testament of a new day was coming. In Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. That's us. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to apply to our hearts all that the Father ordained for us from all of eternity past. And all that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. The Spirit of God is God's ink quill. He's writing a unique and a special message on each and every one of us, every day of our lives. My letter will be different than yours. Your letter will be different from others. But it's a letter that God wants to have written, and it is written on your heart, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, may, under, may help you understand why you're going through what you're going through today. So the question may need to be asked, well, what kind of a message is the Spirit writing on my heart? And that's why secure Christians don't need to promote themselves to find acceptance with God or anyone. We're already accepted by God through faith alone in Christ alone. The question is, who are we trying to to convince? Who are we trying to appeal to? What matters most is who we are in Christ and not how we perform for the applause and affection of the world. So, why do churches measure their success by the beauty of their buildings and the number of people who pack their pews? It's misplaced pride. What matters most is what? Transformed lives. Now, let me illustrate what that might be like. Suppose in the first church that I planted... 
in Camarillo, California, there were some new members who had come into the church who questioned the founding of that church by my ministry. And now they were questioning my ministry even here with you now in Mission Viejo. So what if I tried to commend myself by displaying my ordination license, my diplomas from college and seminary, my accomplishment in the Doctor of Ministry program? What if I went about boasting about old newspaper clippings, the articles I've written, or the Bible studies that I've put together that I've authored that are translated into five languages, would that be enough to validate my calling after 45 years of ministry? You know what the Apostle Paul would say? Absolutely not. And I agree. That's not the measure of our calling. That's not the measure of our sufficiency. What counted most to Paul were changed lives as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit working through the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. A number of years back, I returned to my first church. It was for a special occasion. And while I was there, a young, attractive young girl came up to shake my hand. And she introduced herself. Hello, Pastor Don. I'm Lacey. Now, I looked at her and I thought, the name is familiar, but I don't know who she is. She was an infant at the time while I was her pastor. And this is what she said. To this day, I never forget you. Because you dedicated me to the Lord. She said, I have a photo of you holding me on that day. And I listened to an old tape that records what you said that day and how you prayed for me. I never knew that. Lacey's and others like her are my letter of recommendation. It's not a badge of pride, but it's evidence of the Spirit of God being able to work through inadequate people. Some of you may be, well, parents. Do you ever feel inadequate for the job? Do you ever wonder what will happen to your children? Have you done your best? Did you get them to the right schools? Did you get them in the right sports team? Were you always uh, feeding them the right food, (laughs) gluten-free, fat-free? And you wonder, what will your legacy be? I can tell you what it'll be and what you want it to be is that you gave to them the scriptures. You gave to them your best of loving them and affirming them 
And then entrusting that the Spirit will bring that results back into their life as they grow older. See, Paul could have produced many recommendations from the most renowned biblical scholars in Jerusalem. But what counted most to him were changed lives. He actually boasted of his inadequacies. How contrary to the others who were boasting of their accomplishments. He boasts of inadequacies to teach the adequacy of the Holy Spirit. We find Paul's theology of sufficiency here in verses 4 through 6. He moves on and says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit does what? It gives life. You see, the Spirit works in us a ministry of sufficiency for inadequate people. Our confidence comes from knowing we come to God through Christ's righteousness, not our own. Our confidence doesn't come from the accumulation of years of good works. Rather, our confidence comes from being in Christ and having the Spirit at work in us. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. In Ephesians 3, 12, we are told, Christ Jesus our, in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Where does a Christian find confidence? Paul just spoke about it there. You have confidence to come to God because you are in Christ. You come boldly. That's our confidence. Hebrews 4.16 builds on that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's where we find confidence. Confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence comes from knowing that we can come to God with boldness. To pour out our hearts. To admit our weakness, our failures. To confess our sins and know they will be forgiven. So that you can say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. My friends, that's the gospel. And we move off into performance-driven acceptance. That's when you begin to feel inadequate. Because you know you just can't keep that up. You see, our sufficiency comes from God. He's our adequacy. He gives us strength. And those who are confident have learned not to depend upon themselves... Your background, 
your strength, your intellect, your beauty. Not to depend upon ourselves, but rather to rely on, depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul learned. He learned this through his many trials and tribulations. He was utterly weak, inadequate to meet the demands that came upon him. So he tells us in the first chapter. He admits this openly. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, about ready to give it up. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And he may very well have been on death row. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's a demonstration of the adequate power of God in our lives. It's made available to us by the Holy Spirit. If we are to be honest with each other, who really is adequate? Who's adequate in themselves to meet the demands of being a pastor? I don't. Being an elder, deacon, deaconess, a leader, church, or wherever, a teacher, a parent, a spouse, a student, or employer. Especially when we come up against the constant demands that keep growing beyond what we ever imagined. How do you handle that? Paul had learned as an apostle to even come to the place of being thankful for his weakness, his inadequacy, because it was in his inadequacy that he realized and experienced this overwhelming power and comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit. He learned that our sufficiency comes from the life of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus taught as well. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, what? You can do absolutely nada. Nothing. It doesn't say that you can't be busy. It doesn't say that you can have your life filled with all kinds of activities. No, you could be full of those things. But without him, you can do nothing that really is eternal and worthwhile. Paul also gives to us great words of comfort. This actually, the very first sentence, is my most favorite verse in all the Bible. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Notice to say once in a while, sometimes, it is what? Always. He leads us in triumph. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And then in verse 16 he ends up, so who's sufficient for these things? 
really, where do we find our sufficiency? Our sufficiency can be found in Christ. I'm painfully aware, after over 40 years of preaching, that I'm not as adequate as other preachers, evangelists, and the like. And every time I walk up the steps to the pulpit, you may or may not know, I tremble and I'm scared to death after that many years. Why? Because I know I'm inadequate. And you do too. (laughs) But somehow you believe that in your inadequacy, in your weakness, God can use you. My responsibility is to be restfully available, instantly obedient, and joyfully expectant. I know there are people far more gifted and talented than myself. So it's not easy to come up here or anywhere before an audience to be criticized, critiqued, or even to be complimented. My insecurity shows up in many ways. Let me give you an example of a day in which I felt very inadequate Felt very uh, embarrassed. Some years back, I completed preaching through the first of two worship services. And between services, I went back to my office with some of the pastors to sort of regroup and plan to move ahead. And to my astonishment, I realized that I had preached and been up in front of the congregation with my zipper wide open. (laughs) I looked at the pastors and I got, oh my goodness. And they all just, they heckled me, berated me, laughed at me. And then I noticed one of the pastors went outside And then he came back in just a few minutes. And uh, he handed to me a note. And it was signed by Ruth. Ruth was one of the wonderful pillars of the church. A wonderful, spiritual, older uh, woman. I admired her a lot. And on that note, she wrote, Please, Pastor Don, keep your zipper up. It disturbs the congregation. (laughs) It disturbed me. I was shocked and embarrassed. And I just dreaded to go out to the second service because who do you think I would run into? That's exactly, I did not want to see Ruth. And then... All the pastors started laughing. The letter was written by one of my staff. (laughs) He had written it and wanted to catch my reaction. 
which was he saw how inadequate, how embarrassed I could be. These are moments you don't forget because you know that you are exposed. (laughs) What do you say? But how do you feel when you have done your best and it wasn't good enough for somebody else? What do you do when you have uh, taught your children all you know over years and years going to church, praying with them and giving them all these wonderful opportunities and then you see that they walk away from the church. So how do you handle that? You see, the Spirit works in us the ministry of righteousness. Paul doesn't let up on this. He's speaking to the inadequate He's speaking to the people who feel that their good works are insufficient. That they don't measure up. He wants to finish his thought. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israels could not even gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to the end Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Try to explain this quickly. Paul is making a contrast between the purpose of the law and the purpose of the new covenant. Let me try to explain that and show the differences. Let's look at the purpose of the law. He says there's a great contrast here with the law compared to, contrasted to the gospel of grace. You see, the purpose of the law was not to make us righteous, but to kill any confidence in our own righteousness to find acceptance with God. The old covenant was to judge, condemn, and sentence sinners To show their desperate need of Christ. It reveals the sin of our deeds as well as our words, thoughts, and motivation. It not only exposes our sin for doing wrong, but it it also exposes what we neglected to do but should have done. If you're looking for affirmation from the law, it's not there. Not if you understand it. The law actually produces guilt, fear, and not confidence in our sufficiency. It was attended by God to show his amazing, our, uh, his amazing grace 
to show the contrast of the glory of the law and the glory of God's grace. What's the purpose of the new covenant? It's to give us confidence. The very thing we need when you are insufficient, inadequate. To give us confidence that we are already accepted to God through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. The new covenant is a one-sided agreement initiated and authored by God alone for the good and not because we are good. He wrote it for us. You didn't negotiate. How do you negotiate with God? He wrote the covenant for us. The new covenant is the announcement of God's great exchange. He exchanges our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. He exchanges our slavery to sin and death for freedom and abundant life. He exchanges our unworthiness for unimaginable worth in God's eyes. He exchanges our temporal life for eternal life. Now what an exchange is that? What do I give God? My sin. What does he give me? His grace. Go figure. And then it's the Holy Spirit that applies that righteousness to my heart. Paul also contrasted the power of the law with the power of the new covenant. You see, the law has no power to transform. You can memorize the OT. You can memorize the Ten Commandments. That might be good. Only the law has power to judge and condemn. The law incites in us the false hope that we can be better if we just try a little harder. It can give us a false sense of righteousness by thinking if we try harder to keep the observable demands of the law, we're progressing in holiness. Yet the law has no power for us to keep the unkeepable, unobservable laws of the heart. You see, some of the laws that we think we can keep, those are observable, doable laws. But when it comes to the attitudes of the heart, motivations of the heart, the words that fall from our lips. Who can keep those? But contrast that with the new the power of the new covenant. It gives us the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to convict us of the sins that we read about in the law. And he gives us the power to say no to temptation. The Spirit gives us spiritual gifts to effectively serve God and produce in us spiritual fruit that glorifies Christ with godly attitudes and character. You see, the law never could do that. When we talk about the glory of the law, He says it comes with fading 
surpassing glory. The glory of God on Mount Sinai departed. The glory on Moses' face quickly faded. The glory that came from promising to keep the law on Sabbath also faded rapidly when they faced their failure to keep the law on Monday. It's like if you're here this morning, you say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a commitment today that I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to think about this. Wait till you get to the car. <laughs> Some of the promises that I've made, you know, in church, I'll never think that about that person. I'll never do this. I'll never say something like that. And I get out in the car. And my own nature just takes over. How could you live by that law? I get in the car, I'm counting on grace. I'm counting on the Holy Spirit to convict me of sin, but then to give me the power to be able to say the right things. And the glory of the new covenant is permanent. It never fades. It has unsurpassed and incomparable glory. It is based upon God's unending and glorious grace. It's infinite. So, in conclusion, so where should our confidence and sufficiency come from? Well, if it comes from pedaling on the performance treadmill or fixing ourselves up in front of the mirror or getting the right clothes, the right house, driving the right car, you'll inevitably get exhausted and you'll fall off the treadmill. But if our confidence and our sufficiency come from dependence upon the Holy Spirit, we will find strength to persevere and hope to continue on. Let's remember the words of Jesus. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, You can do nothing. And keep this one in your mind if you're like me. This is a verse for the inadequate. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal triumphal procession And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Thanks be to God. You can count on him when you can't count on anyone else. Especially yourself. Some may not feel the need to hear about the sufficiency of Christ because you do feel sufficient and adequate. But there will come a day 
when your greatest efforts, greatest admiration, admonishments that you've received and given, after you've done so many difficult things, you'll find that trying to do it by yourself, you will never sense the love and the grace of God. You feel and you understand the grace of God when you're going through difficult times, when you're weak. But he's there for you. To young and old, you're not alone and God values you more than you could ever imagine. With all your inadequacies, that's because we're in Christ. And he's adequate. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for loving inadequate sinners, for giving grace to people who are inadequate. Father, we pray that today as we close our service that you remind us that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace the throne of mercy to receive your grace and help in a time of need. Give courage, strength, and confidence to your people today. Bind us together. Let us encourage one another. Let us persevere. Let us move ahead as we trust you to provide exactly what's needed for each of us as we face each and every new day and each and every new challenge and problem. Thank you, Father, that your grace is more than sufficient, that your love is infinite. Bless your people today, we pray in Jesus' name. For his glory both now and forevermore. Amen.